Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 9, Part 3, From Evidence Not Seen, A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II, by Darlene Dibbler-Rose. Chapter 9, Part 3. Perhaps it is just as well that the scene was never photographed. Few could understand or appreciate the beauty of pugnancy of our victory celebration. Wandering back toward the jungle camp, I thought of those with whom I had shared the same barracks for the past few years in such close contact. I thought of Ruth and Philoma, Margaret and Lillian. I had come to have a deep love and appreciation for all of them. In those years of the very closest of associations, there had never been a quarrel or even cross words among us. I was the youngest, and I had needed their counsel, which they freely gave. They had loved me, encouraged me, and supported me in every way. These women of God truly adored the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am blessed to have known them. How good and pleasant it is for brethren and sisters to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133.1 How kind, sympathetic, and supportive the people of Barracks 8 had been. They were a breed apart. There were many in the camp whom I considered to be true friends. I greatly appreciated the Salvation Army people, Father Bell, Mother Superior, and the sisters, and others who had prayed for Margaret, Philoma, and me when we were in the hands of the Competii. Had it not been for these years, I might never have known these dear people from whom I was soon to be parted. The French have a saying, Partir siste de mourir you pure. To part is to die a little. The climax of that wonderful day was a celebration of worship and praise. As a family, we worshipped and gave thanks to God for his care of us through the difficult times now behind us. We commended one another to his continued care for all the years that lay ahead, expressing gratitude to God for each other, and praying for an abundant measure of strength and grace to be given those who would be leaving loved ones behind. Emotionally exhausted, we slept. Hurrying through the necessary tasks of bringing in water and vegetables and fruit preparation, We went to the old camp to observe what was happening, hoping for word from Pari Pari. A car drove in shortly after we arrived. Excitement ran high when we saw a European among the Japanese. No one recognized him, so we figured he must be from the Australian Army of Occupation. We returned to collect our food and eat at the jungle camp. Early in the afternoon, word came that I was wanted at camp headquarters. In fear and trembling, I ran to the office. Why were they calling for me? When I walked in, all those in the room stood to their feet, even the Japanese officers. Then Mr. Yamajai introduced me to them. The Japanese clicked their heels to attention and bowed. That was a change. Then the European stepped forward to shake hands. He was an Australian major. Mr. Yamajai said that their Japanese translator was having a very difficult time would I translate for them. So that was what he meant when he said, 
I will need you later. There were many important details to arrange recording or regarding the transfer of authority and control from the Japanese to the Australians and Dutch. The classification and imprisonment of Japanese POWs was discussed. That was interesting. The competitii were war criminals and as such would be under heavy guard in the prison in which they had committed so many atrocities. Adequate housing for the Palai and Paripari people was vital. All the doctors, nurses, and patients were to be transferred to Makassar Hospital immediately. The Lord gave me ready facility in the use of the languages for translating. It was very gratifying to talk with the Australian Major, who was the highest-ranking Australian officer in the British and American military POW camp. He answered my questions about world affairs and described briefly uh, what had happened during the last four years. The war in Europe had been over since May 7. MacArthur had made his first landing in the Philippines in January, and by March 4, some 5,000 American prisoners had been released in Manila. The Philippines were now completely free. Most of the internees uh, had long since gone back to the States. Japan had been severely bombed and made landings, and many landings had made had been made on the main island of Japan by the Americans. I listened carefully, trying to retain all he was saying to share with the other women later. He suggested that I might want to write my family, and he would see that the letter was mailed. It was a, of special interest to me that he knew Ruth's husband and had known Russell. He remembered Russell's ministry in his camp. For a time, Russell had, was allowed to go to the British and American POW camp. He was able to help some of the men who at that time were in very great need. These men were survivors of the Battle of the Java Sea and were routinely subjected to beatings with iron pipes, often as many as 200 blows per beating, enough to reduce human flesh to pulp. He expressed sympathy as Mr. Yamajai had told him of Russell's death. I also learned that the planes we had been hearing were American planes evac evacuating the American and Australian POWs from the British and American camp, who understandably required medical help immediately. He understood that no women or children were to be moved by plane, but he thought it might be arranged. I told him of the other Americans in our camp, Margaret Kemp and Philoma Seeley and Mrs. Wetzel and her little girl in the Ambon camp. I mentioned that I did not wish to leave until I had the, op had had the opportunity to, of visiting Russell's grave. Mr. Yamajai joined us and said that the Major's car was ready, so he left. Joining the women, I shared all I had heard and observed. We had so much catching up to do. After devotions, we talked far into the night. Excitement and anticipation welled within us. I made mental notes of all the things the women wanted me to ask the Major if I saw him again. The following morning, I was again called to headquarters to interpret. I handed my letter home to the Major. I had been very careful about what I wrote. 
lest my parents become unduly distressed. When the morning session was over, I came out to find the exodus had begun, and Ruth had been in one of the early groups to leave. leave. An army truck arrived, but I didn't see the passenger. Someone reported that it was a Dutch doctor who had come from Pari-Pari. I too was anxious to hear the news from Pari-Pari. A woman touched my arm and said that Margaret Jaffrey wanted me. She walked quickly away, and I thought she was off to garner more news. I went down to find Margaret and her mother in the Ambon camp. They were in one of the stone houses, and when I stepped in the door, I could see that both of them had been crying. A great lump of fear up came up in my throat. Margaret, what is it? It's not your father, is it? She dropped her head on my shoulder. Yes, we just got word from a Dutch doctor that Daddy died last month on the 29th of July. Oh, Margaret, no, it can't be. I've been wanting so badly to talk to him about Russell's death. How terrible for you and your mother. Mrs. Jaffrey, I'm so sorry. I put my arm around her, and we cried until there were no more tears. Mr. Jaffrey was like a father to me. He was my mentor. I had been welcomed into their home, and they had all been so kind to me. I could not count the hours. I had sat with him and Margaret while he shared things from his childhood, his home, his con conversion, and his call to be a missionary. How dreadful for Mrs. Jaffrey. He had always been there for her. What would Margaret do? Her father had been her very life. What would they both do now? I asked if Lillian and Margaret Kemp knew. They did, and had gone to collect their things as... They would be going with Margaret and her mother to Makassar that, that afternoon. I was very glad that they would be in a different environment and that Lillian and Margaret Kemp would be there to help them. We had heard that most of the houses in town were disaster areas, filthy, dirty, and most of the light and bathroom fixtures gone or broken. Many of the homes were without furniture. Someone called that I was wanted at the commander's office. I kissed them goodbye and said I'd see them when I got to Makassar. My heart was very heavy. I had to be alone for a moment. I walked to a nearby spring, knelt down, and splashed water on my face trying to staunch my tears. Lord, this is a very bitter thing for Mrs. Jaffrey and Margaret to bear. If only Dr. Jaffrey could have been spared until they had some time together, or if they had been told a month ago they would have had time to adjust, at least in a measure. They were expecting to see him this very afternoon. That is such an unwarranted cruelty on the part of the Japanese not to inform them at once. Lord, comfort them. And me, Lord, how much I wanted to talk to him about Russell's death. He would have known all about it. Did you really have to take him at this time? By the time I got to the office, the Lord had calmed my heart. A Dutch gentleman uh, was there who stood up when I entered. He looked inquiringly at me, then said, Are you Mrs. Dibbler? Yes, I am. What's your name? I'm Miss, Mrs. Dibbler. Sorry, I mean you're, er, uh, he paused and realized he was searching for a word. 
Oh, you mean my given name? It's Darlene. Darlene, Darlene, yes. You're the one. I'm Dr. Goodblood. I'm the one who attended your husband when he was sick, and I was with him when he died. Please sit down. He proceeded to tell me that Russell had had dysentery, as had many others in the camp. But when their rations were cut and the food was poor, Russell lost a lot of weight and became increasingly weaker. The problem was that our rice was uh, musty and full of worms. If he had been well, he might have been able to eat it anyway, like the rest of us. But being so ill, he just couldn't. He tried, but it came back up. We made a rice gruel for him, but even that he could not keep down for long. So he became dehydrated. If it had been had just been the dysentery, I think I might have saved him, but he had a serious heart condition. That was the cause of his death. At some time, he must have put a terrible strain on his heart, damaging it, and it just gave out. I'm so sorry. I did everything for him that I knew to do, but we did not have the medicines or the facilities we needed. I came because I wanted you to know that for the last four hours before he died, he kept calling for you. Darlene, I am every man, I and every man in the camp who uh, we thought might have some influence with the Japanese begged them to fetch you, but they refused. He passed away at midnight on the 28th of August, 1943. I wanted you to know this, or that his last thoughts before going to heaven were of you, Darlene. He was such a good man. I looked up through my tears to see his eyes searching my face. What a kind, thoughtful man you are, Dr. Goodblood. I know that you and the others did everything you could to save Russell. Father Bell told me as, as much. You cannot know how much this means to me, what you have told me. I am very grateful to you. I want you to know, too, how much we have appreciated your wife here. She's done everything for us she could with very limited medicine and facilities, as have the other doctors. Your wife is a very kind and sympathetic lady. He stood up to leave, and I thanked him again. As we shook hands, Sweet Seventeen came out of his room to shake our hands and bow to us. I knew that he, too, was sorry about Russell's death. This he had told me the day I was informed that Russell had died. Remembering what Dr. Goodblood had just told me, I realized that Sweet Seventeen had been there in Pari Pari at the time, but he would have had no authority to arrange for me to be brought from Kampali if the commanding officer had refused, nor would he have had the authority to tell me about Russell's death when he arrived in our camp. And there's a note down here at the bottom of the page, and we'll continue back up into the text in a minute. Uh, so Darlene writes here at the bottom, and this note, she writes, Mr. Presswood uh, later told me what a cruel, sadistic man the, their officer or their commander was, forcing them to work until they dropped with exhaustion at work for which, which there was no rhyme or reason. He withheld food from them, so the men had no scrounge, or had to scrounge for anything edible. 
even leaves from the jungle trees. When they were given food again, the daily rations had been reduced to 280 calories. They were forced on a death march into the far interior of Salibs after their camp had been bombed. For some time, they lived in pigsties. They were f flooded out, then traveled through four to six inch deep um, mud, all the while enduring a reign of terror by the guards, who beat the men unconscious for the slightest defense, then revived them by throwing water on them so they could beat them again. Dysentery was epidemic, and more than 25 men died. Many others had bari-bari, scurvy, and malaria. Dr. Jaffrey kept busy writing Bible expositions in Chinese for the Bible magazine in a notebook. He remained cheerful, always encouraging the others. When their rations were cut so drastically, he weakened rapidly, and on July 29, 1945, he slipped quietly and triumphantly into the presence of the God he loved implicitly. A faithful soldier, faithful soldier that he had been, his final battle won, he laid down his sword and took up his crown of everlasting life. This just a month earlier. Back up into the text. Darlene says, I went to the well to bathe before returning to the jungle camp. I washed myself and my work suit at one and the same time without soap. A good soaking couldn't hurt either of us. I walked slowly to let the sun dry my clothes, and arriving at the shack, sat on the stoop in the sun to commune with my lord. I heard a man's voice, and looking up, saw a man in white clothes talking with some women. They all turned and looked in my direction. Then one of the women pointed out, at, pointed at me and waved. The man left them and walked toward me. He was wearing an immaculate white uniform and highly polished black shoes. He looked so squeaky clean, and his hair was so neatly combed that I felt like an unkempt, bed-wrangled, skinny waff from the other side of the tracks. I had seen so much altogetherness in I hadn't seen so much altogetherness in years. I quickly ran my fingers through my hair sat up straight and smoothed my work suit. His first question was, Are you an American? I knew he was thinking that I looked like no American girl he had ever seen. I stood up as tall as I could and rather defensively answered, Yes, sir, I'm an American. His eyes were locked on my bare feet. Don't you have any uh, shoes? I slumped back onto the stoop and pulled my feet as far back under the shack as I could. Then I became aware of the empathy in his eyes. No, but that's all right. I'm used to being to going barefoot. They recently brought in some tennis shoes, but I couldn't find a pair. Well, I'm going to get you a pair of shoes. What size shoes do you wear? Probably a size 5 or larger now. But don't worry, I don't mind going barefoot. I realized that his abruptness was anger against those responsible for my condition that he was feeling sorry for me. I'll send some shoes tomorrow. What else can I get you? It was obvious that I needed clothes. Please, I would like so much to have a comb and maybe some soap. Uh, we were bombed and I lost everything. I'm sorry, I should have introduced myself, he said. 
I'm Tom Sawyer from Los Angeles, and I'm with the U.S. Navy. It was on the tip of my tongue to say yes, and I'm Becky Thatcher, but I didn't know if he had a sense of humor. I settled for. I'm Darlene Dibbler for, from Boone, Iowa. Look, the Major told me about you, and I've been thinking tomorrow when we fly in, we could make a drop of some things to you. Do you know of a place here that is fairly level and free of trees? We'll be coming in low, as it will be a f free drop. Of course, the rice paddy, right down there, we walk towards it. Please, we need food for the children more than anything. Powdered milk, any kind of milk, cereals, flour, maybe some meat if you have it, and combs. He thought the rice paddy would be excellent, and it suggested that it should be marked in some way so the perimeter would be clearly defined. I told him I was sure I could find to get I could get something from Mr. Yamajai for marking the drop area. I must go now. There's a car waiting for me, but we'll be back tomorrow. Women appeared from every direction with a dozen questions. Who was he? What did he want? What did he say? Why were you looking at the rice passy, patty? I answered all their questions, and they laughed with me about the Tom Sawyer bit. But when I told them about the food drop, they hugged and kissed me, and we danced around singing, Food, food, glorious food. It didn't take much to start a revelry at this juncture. Just a little food. Before it was dark, everything was organized. Mr. Yamajai was obligingly uh, brought, uh, Mr. Yamajai verily obligingly brought out a bolt of white material that we tore into strips for markers. Sweet Seventeen offered his help. The drop went off without a hitch, except for poor little Brotergy Rotus's reaction. Even though the planes were flying very low, the impact of the drop caused the friction lids to fly off the tins, and the contents sprayed up word like geysers, except for one tin. There it sat, its lid still in place. When Brotergy saw his mother start towards it, he jumped up and started screaming frantically, Mother, don't touch it! Don't touch it! It hasn't exploded yet! The tears were running down his cheeks. I ran to pick him up, thinking he was going to faint. So great was his terror. I held him tight, repeating, It's all right, Brotergy. It's not a bomb. I motioned to Mrs. Rotz and the women to leave, to leave it. His older brother brought a tin and a lid to show him what hap happened with a tin hit when a tin hit the ground. When he was assured it wasn't a bomb, we fetched the tin, opened it, and showed him what was inside. Funny? No. We didn't laugh. I felt sick with hurt and anger for Brotergy and the other little ones whose emotions had been ravaged by the sights and sounds of war. During the gathering of the food that had been dropped, I came across a tin of sweetened condensed milk. The tin had burst, and the contents were dribbling away onto the ground. What a terrible waste! I grabbed up the half-empty tin, poured the milk into my hand, and lapped it up until the tin was empty. I licked my fingers and lips, 
still savoring that delicious, out-of-this-world flavor. My hands were sticky, so I set off to get some water, when suddenly I dashed behind the nearest tree, wiping my mouth with a leaf. I philosophized that it was worth it, for it was probably the only time I would ever enjoy food going both ways. We had been so hungry for meat, and at last we were to have some. The U.S. Navy had sent us some tins of meat called Spam, and we decided that Spam was beast in its most excellent uh, succulent form. The generosity of the Navy in sharing so much Spam with us was quite overwhelming. When later I mentioned to some of the men how liberal and kind they had been to us, they looked uh, embarrassed, then burst out chuckling. My dear, you are so welcome. Would you like some more? True to his word, Tom Sawyer had included combs and soap. Someone mentioned an additional package at the office with my name on it, so I went to see what it was. I saw Mr. Yamajai standing in the doorway. After greeting me, he went back into the office and came out carrying a package designated for Darlene Dibbler, the American. He called something in Japanese to someone else. I deduced that he had said, bring a pair of scissors. For seconds later, the uh, later Sweet Seventeen handed me a pair. Uh, uh, Mr. Yamajai wanted me to open it, so I did. It contained a pair of shiny black men's shoes. They were small, but not small enough to jubai Najana. Try them, miss or missus. I put them on, and both Mr. Yamajai and his second-in-command thought they were very beautiful. Bagas Najanjai, beautiful, missus. I smiled on standing up, uh, for I could see so much shoe at, in, out in front of me that I thought I must look like Sweet Seventeen with his very long feet. The shoes were too big, but I knew a woman whom they might fit and who needed shoes badly. Mr. Tom Sawyer was a very gracious man to send me the shoes. I hoped I would see him again to thank him. Mr. Yamajai asked if I were going to, away with the other Americans. No, I said. I would like to visit Mr. Dibbler's grave before I leave. Ah, Tuan Major told me that, Ninjunja, so I have ordered a truck to be here tomorrow morning to take you to Pare Pare, and I have also sent word to the men there that you are coming. The truck will then take you to Makassar so you can so you will be ready to go with the last plane load. I was amazed that he knew all about the plane schedules and so forth. I thanked him profusely for arranging transport, transport for me. It's nothing, Ninjunja. Tuan, Yamajai, I have wanted to thank you ever since you came to Makassar to visit me in prison. I was very sick from malaria, beribari, and dysentery. I never had tuberculosis, as the Kempetii told you, but I was very sick, and the bananas you sent me by the guard gave me strength so I, that I didn't die. Did you know that the Kempetii men said they would cut off my head? 
He nodded. Nanjunja, I told them you were not a spy. I knew you weren't because of what you had told me about God here in my office. I told them what you had told me. I'm sorry, Nanjunja, that your husband died and you have had so much trouble, but now you go back to America. Mr. Yamajai, I had told Tuan Major about your visit and the bananas that saved me from starvation, also about the Kempetii. I will tell Ninjunja Presswood's husband also. Mr. Yamajai had pleaded mercy for me. I certainly owed him that much. Suddenly, something occurred to me. Mr. Yamajai had told them I had talked to him about God's love. That explained why, at the last hearing, the interrogator had said to me, but if we win the war, you would not stay and tell me, tell my people about God, would you? You'll go back to America? No, I wouldn't go back if God wanted me here. Do you know that God loves your people too? But the brain spoke sharply to him, and he said no more. The Australian major from the Army of Occupation told me that the two Competii officers, the brain and the interrogator, had cut their wrists on barbed wire in an attempt to commit suicide rather than come to trial, but they were they had been unsuccessful, and both were sentenced to be executed. I said good night to Mr. Yamajai and Sweet Seventeen, and thanked them again for arranging the truck for me. It was still light, and most of the women were in the area of the old camp. A vehicle had stopped outside the gate, and the passengers were coming in. I saw Ruth and Ernie among them, so I ran to meet them. Ruth was absolutely radiant. The transformation was amazing. I felt happy to see them together again. We spoke briefly as the car was not staying long. They were aware of my plans for the next day and wanted to be sure I stayed with them when the truck brought me from Pari Pari to Makassar. Wisji knows where we're living. Ernie uh, handed me four letters and a drawing. There's a letter I wrote you after Russ died, but I wanted to tell you personally. His face was drawn, and he said softly, Be thankful that the Japanese never fetched you. You would never have recognized Russ. Now you'll be able to remember him as he was the last time you saw him. I don't know why God took him. His life and messages had a great impact on the men in all the camps. I miss Russ. Uh, he was my dearest friend, and I think Dr. Jaffrey would have said the same. He looked at me sadly, remembering, May I comfort you? We have to believe that our father knows best. The driver sounded the horn, so they had to go. They assured me that they would be looking for me the next day. I waved, but I couldn't speak. Clutched tightly in my hand were the letters Ernie had brought. I sought a place near our hut in the jungle camp where I had privacy to read my letters. The people understood. They had been, they had seen Ernie hand them to me. I looked long at a drawing by Brother uh, Geraldius. It was a sketch of Russell's grave, beautifully done in pencil. At the bottom, he had written, God. Kinsdi Biston, God chooses the best. 
on the reverse side, I found these words drawn by Brother Gerardulus, uh, who was with him when he went to heaven and who closed his eyes on August 28, 1943. I prayed that God would bless Brother Gerardus for his kindness and the Christian love he had shown Russell and now me. I laid the drawing carefully on the grass beside me. Then with trembling hands, I took up a letter carefully folded to make an envelope. I recognized the writing. It was addressed to Mrs. C. Russell Dibbler Kampali. The letter had been written not long before Russell died. My dearest darling, the letter began, followed by what he dared to write about conditions. His expressions of love again included the sentence that I will never forget. My darling, I have wished a thousand and one times that I had taken you away from here. I am concerned for your safety. Commending me to God's care, he closed with, I send you all my love, Russell. It took me a long time to finish the letter. I didn't want to stain it with tears. I was so grieved that he felt he should have taken me away. Both of us had agreed that we should remain, and that decision was reached only after much prayer. Lord, I trust that you reminded him that it was you who impressed upon both our hearts that we should not leave. I have been safer here, overshadowed by your love, than I would have been anywhere else on this earth outside of your will. The first letter from Dr. Jaffrey said, I owe Darling Dibbler $25 for her 25th birthday, payable after the war. Happy birthday, Lassie, Dr. Robert A. Jaffrey. I loved it that he had been thinking of my birthday and no doubt praying for me. His other letter and Ernie's were both written after Russell's death. The contents were similar to what Dr. Goodblood had told me, except that Dr. Jaffrey made mention of Russell's asking to be anointed with oil and prayed for, which he and Ernie had done. That was around 11 p.m., after which Russell seemed more restful. I do not remember having prayed for anyone like I prayed for him, but somehow in the providence of God it was not his will to heal him. It is for you, Lassie, that I pray that you may be comforted and accept Russell's death as the will of God. Ernie added that Dr. Jaffrey and I had gone outside, hearing Russ call for you. We couldn't bear it. We walked back and forth outside the room where the doctor was attending Russ. We prayed that God would spare him, not only for your sake, but for the sake of the field. He was my dearest friend, and God wonderfully used Russ from the time we were taken to Makassar to our camp, as well as the British and American military POW camp. The men there were in great need. His messages left such an impression on the men that months later they could still relate the main points. Russ had wonderful rapport with men of all classes. His death brought a feeling of great loss felt throughout the camp. What Brother Geraldus wrote under the sketch of Russ's grave, God kissed the Biston, expresses what we all felt. God had indeed taken one of the best men in the camp to be with himself. His funeral was very impressive, and we were all deeply moved. Many of us wept openly and unashamed. Some months later, 
a Dutch gentleman told me that at Russell's funeral service he had given his heart to Christ. I miss Russ, and there are many others who sorrow with you. When I went into the hut, the women who were left uh, were waiting. I shared Russell's and the others' letters with them and showed uh, the drawing by Brother Geraldus. Our lives had become so interwoven that what mattered to me mattered to them. We had become a close-knit family. By the time I finished reading the letters, we had drawn into a tight circle, each drawing strength from the other. Clasping hands, we prayed. I saw the measure of their love for me and mine for them expressed in tears, knowing that after tomorrow our paths might never cross again. After everything was quiet, I crept into the throne room of my heart. I had not come at, as a petulant child to assert that a privilege had been denied me, but that I had a need to confess how wrong I had been in misjudging the whole situation. I had felt grief and anger that Dr. Jaffrey was dead, and I was denied the privilege of hearing from him all about Russell's death and frustration at my uh, need just to talk to him. Forgive me, Lord, for not ten minutes later I was sitting in the commander's office with Dr. Bootyblood, uh, who could tell me all about Russell's sickness and death. Did anyone else know about Russell's damaged heart and that if he had lived he might have been an invalid? Russell an invalid? What a terrible blow that would have been to a man who had been a pioneer all his missionary life. Oh God, I must believe you do all things well. The doctor had asked me if I knew when Russell's heart might have suffered damage. I remembered the day in Makassar when he came down with the gang uh, came down the gangplank of the ship, returning from his first trip over the trail to open the New Guinea field. He had made the trip alone. He was denied sufficient sleep by carriers plotting to drop their loads and abandon him. He suffered a too rapid loss of weight due to insufficient uh, supplies. He endured the rigors of a tra uh, trail that was no trail, following a ribbon of water to find a Stone Age people who had never heard, and to claim by faith a land and its people for God that New Year's Day, 1939, to plant a seed and water. It was his life's blood that from New Guinea's uncounted multitude there might be the redeemed to sing with us worthy is the lamb who was slain then came the letter from out of the past russell's letter preserved by ernie who understood what it would mean to me kept since 1943 affirming the love the doctor surmised pure love always leaves behind a legacy of undefiled memories without regrets it was wrong of me to think I was being denied a privilege, written as he would speak. Dr. Jaffrey's letter shared with me all about Russell's death with the added dimension of the anointing of Russell. God did heal him, then took him home, his heavenly home, where there is no more sickness, no damaged hearts, and no more pain. It was lovely, too, to know that even though miles and a war had separated us, Dr. Jeffrey had remembered my birthday and had prayed for me. 
Ernie could have destroyed his letter when peace came, but he didn't. The hurt from the loss of his friend Russ lay fresh upon the page. How encouraging to know that God had graciously used Russell's ministry to comfort, challenge, yes, and convict others. He, he being dead, yet spoke, and at his funeral a man had given his heart to Christ. Ernie, too, had told me all about Russell's death and burial. Next time, Chapter 4, Chapter 8, from Evidence Not Seen, by Darlene Dibbler-Rose.